Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 14th, 2018, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And if it's Tuesday, it's an election day, at least a primary day in states like Vermont, Wisconsin, and less cheese-producing locales also, Connecticut, Minnesota. It is Minnesota I want to talk about. Interesting situation there. Both senators are involved in individual primaries. Amy Klubachar, she's the uh, incumbent. She'll likely win in the fall. She will most likely beat her challengers in the primary, though the St. Cloud Times does dutifully list all the candidates who are running against her for the DFL, Democratic Farmer Labor Party Organization. Name Amy Klobuchar, uh, DFL party-endorsed candidate, experience, U.S. Senator since 2007, top issues, Jobs in the economy, agriculture, and rural communities, environment, including climate change and energy and natural resources, health care, national security, veterans, ethics and democracy, seniors, family and children, education, public safety, and consumer protection. Those are her top issues. So by top issues, you mean every issue. Hey, you know what? Maybe that's an opening. Let's see who's listed next in the candidates for Democratic senator from Minnesota. Leonard Richards, DFL from Stillwater experience. Convicted of killing his half-sister and lawyer in the 1980s, serving a life sentence in the Minnesota Correctional Facility. Top issues? Unknown. I think the murderousness might be one of his top issues. Campaign website? Not applicable. Yeah, well, the other Senate seat is also up for a vote, but that's because Tina Smith was put there to replace Al Franken, who was bounced after sexual harassment allegations. He uh, cupped the bottoms of some women that he posed for photos with, if you recall. Down the ballot in Minnesota, there's Keith Ellison, a six-term congressman, deputy chair of the DNC, but Ellison is being accused of domestic abuse. The accusation came to light when his former girlfriend's son took to social media to say a tape exists of Ellison insulting his mother as he tried to drag her off a bed. No one has seen the tape. The ex-girlfriend says it's too painful to release the tape. The alleged abuse victim has called her son brave. She has written generally about being abused, didn't name an abuser, but now says that yes, she was referring to Ellison. It's all happened within the last three days. That's how elections work. Ellison denies this. And I could make some sort of case comparing Ellison to Franken and comparing what the uh, allegations are. Franken denied it. The it being touching women on the rear end while being photographed, which is gross, if true. But he was still ousted from the party. Of course, with Franken, there was this smooth exit ramp. uh, Didn't threaten to turn a blue seat red. We're witnessing right now. Uh, an election campaign that Tina Smith is likely to win, so no net political loss. If Ellison loses, a Republican could become Attorney General of Minnesota. But I'm not actually going to damn party leaders for coming to a hasty conclusion because I think hasty conclusions are wrong. I don't know the truth of the accusations. Media are endeavoring to report the story out. And actually, therein lies my criticism. Because if you were a citizen of Minnesota waking up today wanting to vote, not wanting to just trust the story that was reported on Twitchy or someone's Twitter feed that you don't really know, maybe you'd want to turn to the biggest and most powerful paper in the state, the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And they are not covering it. Not today, they're not. Their front page has no mention of it. Their Twitter feed isn't running anything on it. And they have a live election blog, but it's just, you know, about turnout and random vox pop of people on online at the polls. 
The Strib, which is what they call the Star Tribune, adheres to a policy that's kind of common and used to be more common in media. The day of the election, they won't cover issues or breaking news. I've confirmed this with one of the Strib's journalists, who is, or I should say would be, covering the Ellison allegations. The blackout party is, or I should say was, a consideration of the newspaper's role as civic institution, but I believe the policy has outlived its usefulness in 2018. When I worked for NPR, we had such a policy, and NPR, at least in primaries, has loosened up because there's so many primaries and you force yourself not to cover news that often. But I don't think the Strib should be covering this story because times have changed and loosen up, Grandpa. I'm not arguing it's a race to the bottom. You got to get there first. I'm saying the idea of civic duty has changed. When the policy was constructed, if the huge paper in town didn't cover an issue, pretty much meant the issue wasn't going to get covered. But now with Twitter and hundreds of websites and sources talking directly to voters, a hands-off approach doesn't make your hands unsullied. It just makes you rudderless. The voters need the information the strip should be providing, and the readers are not getting it because of an outdated notion of civic good. On the show today... I spiel about, oh my God, it's three days in a row, but yeah, we're going back to Omarosa. Can you really fault her, the provider of so much fodder? But first, a guy who might run for president in 2020, that's not why I'm interested. It's his voice in the Democratic Party. It's the fact that he could be mayor of the great city of Kansas City sometime soon. But yeah, it's a little bit maybe that he's running for president. Could be in 2020. Jason Kander. Jason Kander is uh, a husband, a father, a former army captain. He's the host of Majority 54, the uh, Crooked Media podcast. He was the Secretary of State for the state of Missouri, an elected official, a rising star in the Democratic Party, and now the author of Outside the Wire, 10 Lessons I've Learned in Everyday Courage. Hello. Do I call you Secretary Kander still? Uh, you bet no. You call me Jason. <laughs> God damn it. Do I call you Captain I mean, Kander? I will leave right now. Wait, no. were you Captain Kander? I, yeah, that's by far. I mean, if you're going to go with titles, that's the best one. I don't think I'll have a better one. That was Captain was pretty good. Yeah. But I, yeah, Jason. I, Jason's good, Mike. But it's also, but it also seems, I mean, the whole Captain Kander seems like the sort of thing where if you ever said anything off the cuff, someone would turn to you and say, well, thanks, Captain Kander. You know, you would think that more people would make that joke. Yeah. They, people tend to do it more in writing, which is odd because the spelling is different. Yeah, it's a K. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's actually pretty, pretty rare. I've, I've always been surprised. And I've always been Maybe trying to figure out. Maybe it's the circles that you travel in. Maybe like as you were under, uh, under fire in uh, <laughs> Afghanistan, they're not going to be cracking wise on wordplay. I had plenty of good nicknames, though. <laughs> I mean, I have a whole chapter on what I learned from my nicknames. My favorite was Can Do. It was the only nice one. Mm-hmm. You know, other than that, it was a lot of like Toucan because I got a big nose. And then in Afghanistan, obviously, part of my nickname was Kandahar. I mean, yeah. Because yeah. that was it's kind of a natural. How could you not? Yeah. It was out too there. Easy. It was too floating. easy. Too easy. All right. Let's talk about where I and I think most people first heard about you. This ad you did where blindfolded you assembled uh, a rifle. I'm Jason Kander, and Senator Blunt has been attacking me on guns. Well, in the Army, I learned how to use and respect my rifle. In Afghanistan, I'd volunteer to be an extra gun in a convoy of unarmored SUVs. And in the state legislature, I supported Second Amendment rights. 
I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of these. I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this. Good ad, compelling ad. But when you think about it, your service is impressive to me and you should be proud of it. But the fact that that said so much to the electorate, whereas you couldn't do an ad like that where a blindfolded person helped someone get a housing voucher, right? That wouldn't play. That wouldn't matter. Maybe maybe like if you put together Ikea furniture. Maybe. But, you know, Barack Obama gets derided for being a community organizer. There are sure. some jobs that get your foot in the door yeah. with people and there are some jobs that you have to apologize for. And I don't think they're always the most logical jobs. I don't disagree with what you're saying, um, but I think in that case, so that ad was the NRA was spending millions of dollars against me. I have an F rating proudly from the NRA. And that ad was me saying the NRA is wrong, I'm right, and I know what I'm talking about. I mean, the highest compliment you can get as a politician is you seem comfortable in your own skin, Mm -hmm. which cracks me up because you've never heard anybody say, you know what I love about my accountant, just a regular guy. I mean, it is a special category of pol- just for right, politicians. Right. And so if you are comfortable in what you believe, you have this opportunity to convince people of something. And that's what's lost in politics. And what I try to get across to people is quit trying to convince everybody you already agree with them and start going back to trying to convince them of your opinion because they'll either agree with you because you'll convince them or they will respect you for trying. And they're not going down a checklist of issues. They'll vote for you because they like your character. Yes, if they hear you in the first place. If you get to that point, like I, I always respected Mario Cuomo for just being against the death penalty, even when the polls show it cost him votes. I think polls also show that they respected his quote-unquote authenticity on the issue. But he was governor then, and he get to, got to make that speech, and our attentions weren't so attenuated. So I wonder if someone just coming up can actually, you know, be heard in the way where they can explain their authentic positions, as opposed to, well, before we even consider you for this office, we have to go down this checklist of 12 things that you have to agree with in the first place. Yeah, I would love to sit here and tell you that that's not the case at all for, for a lot of politicians, but the truth is we've created a, a system, particularly on the campaign finance side, and when you think about the way gerrymandering works in this country, we're fully in need of a, of a reboot of our democracy. I mean, when I was running for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, in a competitive Senate race, you have to get all over the country and raise money. I mean, this is something politicians never say out loud, but it's, yeah. it's, we all know it's the case. And so that's why everyone's here in New York exactly. from every state. I had, I mean, man, I don't know how many times I had to come to New York, but it was a lot. And, yeah. and there would be times when I'd go in to meet with a donor, at, like at a restaurant, and they'd be finishing up with the candidate from some other place right before me. And I would make some, I would make a joke like, wow, this system's really working great, right? And nobody ever thought that was funny, which <laughs> bothered me. No one is actually uh, immune from it because the self-funder who's funding their own campaign, they know that if they take a certain position, that could help the fundraising of their opponent. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the individual who is relying on small-dollar donations from their from their base, they know that if they take a position that's antithetical to the base, that money's going to dry up. So either way, we have to achieve getting money out of politics in a meaningful way, something like public financing, because no matter how people raise it, it still influences uh, it still influences politics. If I had to put my political energy into a number of causes, whereas I do think campaign finance absolutely affects the system, I think that we have less of a chance, people have less of a chance to actually reform it than any of these other big fundamental issues that are going on. So it's one of three areas where we need a full democracy reboot. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody ever talks about the fact that usually if you look at American history, we've kind of 
sort of taken a relook at our democracy every 50 years, and now we're about 40 or 50 years overdue. Yeah. So the way we draw districts, the way we do primaries, uh, and then also the way we do campaign money, those three things, if you were to change those, you get an all-new, you know, mint condition, really nice democracy ready to, to do things in the future. What's, your, what's the primary reform you favor? I, I think that there are several. I'm for anything that makes the general election really, really relevant again in every district. So Ranks so, preference voting? Yeah, do you I think, like that? I think it's interesting to try. I'm, I'm watching what's been going on in Maine and some other places. Uh, I think the jungle primary system, some people have problems with it, but I think it's at least a good step in the right direction. My thing is, you know, if you think of your workplace and you imagine that 85% of the people in your workplace were more likely to keep their job if they refused to cooperate with any of their coworkers. Yeah. You'd go out of business. Yeah. That's the United States Congress based right. on the way we've drawn districts and the way we do primaries. So if you can change that system to make it so that more and more districts are places where the general election really matters, whether or not you get a different kind of candidate or a different ideology, I don't know, but what you get are people running for re-election on results. Because they have – it's just math. Like if 30 percent of your district is a different party than you but they can vote in the election that determines whether you get back there, you don't necessarily have to like, you know, change your views for them. But you got to answer their calls. you got to answer their questions at events. Otherwise, somebody else who may have the same views as you is going to show up and actually respond to them. Um, as part of – I don't know if you'd call it your platform or your uh, modus operandi, you always th- – you. You say something that I think is unique among political figures. You'll say the things that are good things about, you know, getting jobs back and getting people to work. And But then you talk about getting people, allowing people to work in the places they've grown up. So I don't want to – tell me what your uh, thought on that is and then I want to ask you a question sure. or two about it. It's one of the biggest reasons I decided to run for mayor in my hometown. Uh, you know, I'm a fifth-generation Kansas City and I – I feel really passionately, and I and I went to school on the East Coast, and then I, I was in the Army for a bit, and I, I very much chose to come home. And I think when you look at the, at the things the Democratic Party stands for, making college more affordable, higher wages, you know, health care that's available, what all of that stuff has in common is that it all makes you far more likely to be able to find success without having to move away from your family. And my party does a good job about talking about people being happy, certainly about healthy, much better all the time about being safe. But that fourth one that they miss a lot is nearby. Yeah. That to me is the American dream. And, and I think that my party has policies that achieve that, and I think we should talk about the nearby part more. Uh, I understand why not only is it good politics, but if the argument is that I'm going to represent this city and I want this city to be better and have good schools, absolutely. But my question is societally, what if America always embraced that? I was looking at the biggest cities in 1910, and uh, Newark was three times the size of Atlanta, and St. Louis was the sixth biggest city, and Buffalo was bigger than San Francisco. If there wasn't a spirit to move away, to move to opportunity— wouldn't America be worse off? But I'm not, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying people shouldn't. Yeah. I'm saying it should be a choice. When people choose to move to yeah. to another city, I want it to be because they had a choice. It wasn't like, if I'm going to survive and have success, I got to get out of here. Yes. Home is a really important thing. I mean, it is to me and it is to a lot of people. Look at things that are very reasonable reforms, like uh, reforming the student loan system. Right. Everybody talks about that like it's just a millennial issue or it's just a, an issue for future or recent college grads. You know what? If you have the average in Missouri of $28,000 in, in college debt and you want to go back, you know, 
let's say it's not Kansas City. Let's say it's Warrensburg, Missouri, 40, 45 minutes out of town, and that's where you're from. And you want to go back there and you want to be a part of your community that raised you. Well, if you've got $28,000 in debt, the wages probably aren't high enough to afford that. Right. And now what's happened? One, you have to probably stay in the big city, maybe Kansas City, um, where, where you went to school, in order to get the wages to pay it off. Or like, you can go back, you can be in debt forever, but you're not going to be able to really contribute to the economy there. My point is like, making college more affordable and reining in the debt is not a policy about like just giving something to millennials. It's a policy about making sure small towns or mid-sized cities in the Midwest don't die because when people go away and rack up big debt, they can't afford to come back to a place where the salary is not big enough to compete. So let's make the debt lower so that the salary and the wages can compete yeah, and then bring th- the wages up too. I think the stereotype is that, you know, the stereotype of people who are anti-government is that it takes away opportunity. But this is an example, as is healthcare. It's an uh, example of giving opportunity, right. actually, and mobility. All right. When you hear the phrase democratic socialism, what does it mean to you? You know, I, I guess I have a hard time pinning down what any of the new phrases mean. Um, but... For me, it's... On fleek? Do you know that one? <laughs> I don't know that one. That's like a year old, and I knew yeah. what it meant a year ago. I don't think it means anything. No, I probably never knew yeah. what it meant. And it's no, like the uh-uh. force. It's like... Yeah, penetrates yeah you know what it is. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, what does it mean to me? I don't know. I, I guess it means the same thing to me that, uh, that it means to me to be a Democrat, which is to give a damn about people even if you've never met them, and maybe furthermore to put faith in the idea that they might give a damn about you too, given the opportunity. I think That, I think voters would respond to some voters might respond to the phrase socialist but what do you think should democrats be embracing that i don't think democrats should ever be afraid of embracing anything they truly believe in we make the mistake of thinking you just roll you just rattle off your issue list nobody i've ever met experiences issues one at a time now we talk about them one at a time yeah when you just rattle off policies or you just say well i'm this kind of democrat or that kind of democrat and that should get it done that ain't enough, not just for, it's not enough for the base either. People need to know that this comes from experience that you've had, you know, not from just, hey, I heard this and now I can rattle off these statistics to you. All right. And do you think there is, has this been overstated, the cleavages within the Democratic Party? I think it's wildly overstated. And, uh, and I know that because, look, I'm a progressive guy endorsed by Planned Parenthood with an F rating from the NRA who outperformed the presidential ticket in Missouri by 16 points, who won in 2012 uh, statewide on the same day President Obama lost by almost 10. Uh, And, you know, even today as I campaign um, and as I've done, you know, the book tour here, when I meet, you know, all these people who are not, you know, interviewers, no offense at all, but I mean like folks who are on the ground knocking on doors, stuff like that, none of them are talking about a politician they saw on TV. They're showing up because their neighbor down the street during the Trump care fight called them and said, hey, uh, I know our district is kind of Republican, but we're going to go to this town hall and demand answers. And that's why in Outside the Wire, I talk about the need to just get out there and grab an oar and be a part of this movement, because it's not about individual politicians. Um, It's about the fact that 54% of the country voted for somebody not named Donald Trump. You should name a podcast after that. I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, and so what that means is, is that if we're all having these individual conversations with each other, you don't need an ad campaign in that case, a national one. You don't need, I mean, because, you know, you have a lot of leverage and a lot of credibility with your friend from church or your friend from work. Jason Kander was Missouri's Secretary of State. He's running for mayor of Kansas City, hosts the podcast Majority 54, and he's the author of the new book, Outside the Wire, 10 Lessons I've Learned in Everyday Courage. Thank you, Jason. Thank you.
And now the spiel. The president and NDAs. Have you ever signed an NDA? I... Okay. Uh, On the advice of counsel, I can only say I may have. Here's the thing. The knowledge that Trump makes employees sign NDAs is all the protection or policing we need of this policy. An elected official getting an underling to sign an NDA, that is all we need to know about the practice. We don't need to eliminate it. We don't need to regulate it. You just need to know your president gets people who work for him to sign an NDA. Often, the things that stop a president from excess is that to the public, they seem very excessive. And that very idea has worked in the past. Maybe it's not working so much anymore. I mean, today, Donald Trump issued a tweet that might have seemed excessive in the normal course of politics in America, except for maybe that time Preston Brooks caned Charles Sumner on the Senate floor. He tweeted about Omarosa Manigault Newman, when you give a crazed, crying lowlife a break and give her a job at the White House, I guess it just didn't work out. Good work by General Kelly for quickly firing that dog. Well, we've said it before, we'll say it again. Trump does not understand a canine's terms of employment. He said Eric Erickson was fired like a dog. He said the New Hampshire union leader was kicked out of the ABC News debate like a dog and predicted that Chuck Todd would be fired like a dog. By the way, I noted this from Chuck Todd's interview with Omarosa on Sunday. Because Donald Trump talks about everyone behind their backs. You leave the room, Chuck. He has a nickname probably for you. Indeed, he does have a nickname. Trump has given Chuck Todd the nickname Sleepy Eyes. Sleepy Eyes, Chuck Todd. And he's called him that in six different tweets. But of Omarosa, he used the phrase, firing that dog, which prompted the New York Times headline, Trump's that dog attack is the latest in a string of insults aimed at black people. The Times notes, in recent weeks, Mr. Trump has called Don Lemon, the black CNN anchor, the dumbest man on television. He questioned the intelligence of LeBron James, the star basketball player for the Los Angeles Lakers. It repeatedly said Maxine Waters, an African-American member of Congress, has a low IQ. He called LeVar Ball, the African-American father of another famous Lakers player, a poor man's version of Don King. Well, that Don King thing may not be the worst analogy in the world. It's certainly an insult. But I think of it mostly as an insult because likening someone to Don King is pretty insulting. But you got to realize this. Don King is a big Trump supporter and Trump loves Don King. A better insult would have been to call LeVar Ball the Dina Lohan of basketball or the Kit Culkin of ESPN. And also when he would say LeVar Ball is the Don King of anything, that's lazy. When you analogize one black person to another, it is a classic trope of the racist mind to look at someone and only be able to see someone of their race. Also, every NBA scouting report does it. Whenever there's a white outside shooter in college, he gets compared to Larry Bird. Whenever there's a black outside shooter in college, reminds the scouts of Ray Allen. So it is a symptom of low-grade prejudice, to be sure. And with Trump, it is a symptom of his bigotry, and it's also his strategy. Strategy and moral failing, all wrapped up in one. However, I kind of do think it's a stretch to frame Trump's lashing out at Omarosa as a symptom of racism per se. He's racist, of course, and this attack is mean and cruel, but is the that dog calling Omarosa that dog, is that necessarily a racist insult that he would only use at a black person? I don't think it is. The Times quotes an Australian psychology professor to note that 
In the English language, the dog insult is typically used to convey a person is morally depraved and stupid, said the professor Nicholas Haslam, who studies the psychology of insults. But of course, Trump doesn't even know, as we have shown, he doesn't even know how dogs work. He doesn't know how English works. When you start a sentence in the English language, the whatever phrase here is typically used to convey, Donald Trump does not use English in the typical way of conveyance. I mean, in the English language, the words powerful, sad, winning, tremendous, failing, and nobody knew mean different things than in the Trump language. The Times does keep a database of every person, place, or thing that Trump has insulted since becoming president. So from the date of his inauguration to July 10th, which was the last time this database was updated, he has used dog 14 times. Sometimes it is in service of that hoary and hairy cliche, couldn't get elected dog catcher. He said that about Bob Corker, George Pataki, and John Sununu. But lying like a dog or fired like a dog or kicked out of a debate like a dog. Yeah, and I suppose, should a dog show up in a debate, he's going to get kicked out. Rules are rules, Rufus. But he said that about Ted Cruz, Eric Erickson twice, David Gregory, Mitt Romney, Steve Bannon, Chuck Todd, Brent Bozell, and as I said, the New Hampshire union leader. He also said that of the mainstream media. Well, he called them lap dogs. All of those are white men or Ted Cruz, who is Latino, or the New Hampshire union leader, which is an inanimate object, or the media, which is a blob. But still, we have CNN tweeting, Trump calling Omarosa a dog is sexist and racist, period. Eugene Robinson, great columnist for the Washington Post. When Donald Trump disparages African Americans as low IQ and dehumanizes a black woman as that dog, he's speaking the language of white supremacy. Of course, the guy, more importantly, the guy's voters, are fueled by racial animus. But my analysis is not so much is the phrase, that dog, is that racist, than the presence inside the White House of Omarosa Manigault Newman is inherently racist in this way. Trump has no real relationships with black people. So when he had to do the appointing of an African-American staffer, as he felt he did, maybe one, he had no one to turn to except the deeply ridiculous Omarosa. And since she's been gone, she's been replaced by zero African-American officials in the West Wing, except for maybe a guy named Jaron, who Kellyanne Conway cited but couldn't really talk about on an interview on ABC. So was concentrating on the racism of the word really that important when the only reason the word ever came up was as a consequence of the racism of the man. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader have never signed an NDA, but they have each been required to sign a DMFO, a do not microwave fish in the office. Steve Lichtai hasn't asked for an NDA, but fearing this could turn into one of those podcasts where the host does a daily weigh-in, He has required me to sign a BMI-TMI. Bimmy Timmies, it's just savvy podcasting. The gist, have you read that change.org petition asking me to STFU? Why would they want me to sign an STFU? Of course, meaning sermonically talk fatuousness unendingly. It doesn't seem to be something that you'd actually have to get me to sign. Oopro-deproo-deproo, and thanks for listening.